Good morning, everybody. How are you all doing? How are you all doing this fine Sunday morning? Fine Sunday morning it is. And um, good morning to all of you who are watching online as well. Good to have you, you, you join us. I'm not pointing and singling you out, Victoria, but over there. For those of you who can't see who's sitting behind the camera, for those, so I wanted to make sure that I, I wasn't picking on Victoria there, but good for everybody to be together here in the building as well as uh, following online. Uh, before we get into the message this morning, uh, some of you asked, um, now that we're attempting to gather back uh, in the building uh, with some of the guidelines that we have as far as trying to social distance, that if you wanted to give, how do I give since we're not gonna be passing around the plate? Um, if you were one of those folks who asked that question, if you would like to give, um, aside from giving online, if you notice on the way out, you'll notice that we have two black boxes on the wall that's labeled offering. So if you want to place your offering in there, you can do that. And, um, you know, as always here, we don't uh, try to uh, force people to give, but if God moves on your heart to do so, please feel free to give towards what God is doing here at Gate City Vineyard. So with that, if this is your first time with us here this morning in person or online, a few weeks back we began a series on the book of Revelation called God Wins. And so this morning we're going to turn our attention to Revelation chapter 2 verses 1 through 7 as we begin to consider a portion of the book of Revelation that is commonly known as the seven letters to the seven churches. And um, we're going to begin looking at chapter 2 today, and then we're going to continue on uh, more in detail. Can you turn me down a little bit? I hear a little hoo-hoo in myself. So we're going to start chapter 2 today, and we're going to finish up chapter 2 next week. So you, you can think of what we're going to get into today as, as sort of a, an intro to the seven letters to the seven churches. So if you're at home, you can turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Verses 1 through 7, you can turn in your Bibles here if you brought them with you. If not, you can follow along on the screen. And here's what we read. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now let me just stop here for a second. The lampstands are symbolic of the church. And how do I know that? Because if you go back and you read chapter 1, it actually tells us that the lampstands are churches. And that's actually one of the few places in the book of Revelation with all of its symbolism and imagery that it actually tells you what the symbolism means. So we, we get a gift here at the beginning. So he who holds the seven stars, those are also angels, in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things that you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of 
God. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. And as we look into your word, help us to realize that we've actually just heard the words of Jesus himself. This is Jesus speaking. And Father, I pray in the same way that, that Jesus, that you spoke to the church in Ephesus and these seven churches, I pray that you would speak to us this morning. Speak to our hearts, speak to our heads, speak to our entire being. And Father, I pray that as we engage your word and encounter your word, that we would encounter you. And as we encounter you, Father, I pray that it would be transformative. Father, I pray that you would help us to, to conform more and more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. For those who need hope here this morning, Father, I pray that you would bring hope. For those who need peace, I pray that you would just release your peace. Father, give your people what they need here this morning. And ultimately, what we need is you. So we ask through the power of your Holy Spirit that, Father God... The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you would reveal yourself to us here this morning and make yourself known. And we pray and we ask these things in the name of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Now, it's been said over the years uh, by pastors and theologians and, and Bible scholars and Bible thinkers alike concerning the seven letters to the seven churches it has been said what we see there, the content that we're going to read over the next few weeks looking at these churches, it's been said that it could be referred to as what Christ thinks of the church. And we just saw an example of this, but you're going to see examples of this all throughout all these seven churches. That in these letters to each church, Jesus will give you know, each church a commendation. And then he'll also give them a, a, a correction. And through these commendations and through these corrections, we begin to understand what Jesus thinks about the church. And so I, I think it's safe to say, I think it's a good thing to say that we could refer to these seven letters to the seven churches as what Jesus thinks of the church. But I think that we can also refer to chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation as what Christ says to the church. Or maybe even better, what Christ desires of the church. If you've ever wondered, and if you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, I, I hope you have at some point. But if you've ever wondered, I wonder what Jesus desires for us here at Gate City Vineyard Church. I wonder what Jesus desires for his church in general. Well, if you've ever wondered that question, again, I hope you have. We're going to see a lot of that over the next few weeks as we begin to look into these seven churches. Now, if you know anything about the seven churches, the seven letters to the seven churches, then you'll know it begins with, each letter begins with, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, as we just read, or to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, or to the angel of the church in Smyrna, or to the angel of the church in Laodicea, and so on. So each letter begins with, to the angel of each respective church. And folks, over the years, you may not have realized this, but over the years, there have been a, there's been a lot of debate in regards to what this angel is. Some have said that this angel represents the senior pastor of each church. Now, folks, over the years, I've known a few senior pastors who were demons, um, angels. I don't know about that. So, so I, I don't think that that's what is meant here by angels, that, that it's referring to the senior pastor of each church. Others have said maybe this is a prophet in the church. 
And then some have said that this should be understood as the angel that is the church. And the reason for that is because the word angel, it could be translated as a messenger or, or, or someone who is sent, someone who is sent out to deliver a message. And the church is being personified as an angel because the church is also called to be messengers. We are called to be messengers uh, of the message of Jesus Christ and the message of the gospel. But the problem that I have with such views is this, is that they posit that this angel is either a human being or a collective of human beings. But whenever the angel or whenever the word angel is mentioned throughout the book of Revelation, and folks, the word angel is mentioned some 67 times throughout the book. And folks, that's a lot. That's a lot. And every time the word angel is mentioned, it is referring to some spiritual otherworldly being or as we commonly think of the being that we think of when we hear the word angel. So I think this is what is really being said here. The angel that this is being delivered to, to John, from Jesus, is a supernatural spiritual being. Now some of you might be thinking, Todd, does Gate City Vineyard have, it has its own angel? And you know what, I'll go ahead and say yes. I, I think that we do. And the reason for that is only because of what we just saw being communicated in this letter and that we see throughout all of the seven letters, seven historical churches. And the message that was given to them is also meant for us today. So you have evidence there and there's other evidences throughout the scriptures that I don't have time to get into this morning. But again, I have absolutely no problem that God has assigned an angel, maybe even a multitude of angels to the church that we call Gate City Vineyard Church. Scripture is very clear. You can go to the book of Hebrews and it talks about one of the main roles, one of the main job descriptions of an angel is to serve, is to minister to the people of God. And so I, I have no problem, no doubts whatsoever that if you could pull back, you know, this reality, this dimension that we're in and you could see the spiritual realm, there would be angels all over this place. And folks, let's not forget, our faith is rooted in the supernatural. It is a supernatural faith, folks, that includes supernatural beings like angels. So let's move on. And what we need to do right now is we need to understand some backgrounds about the, the city of Ephesus as well as some background on these seven churches. So if you would, put that map up there, the next slide. Now, this is, this is a map of, of where the area of the churches were back then in Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey. And some have said that there's, you know, you know, why Ephesus first? Why are they listed in the order that they are? Some have said that there's a big theological significance to why these churches are mentioned in the order that they are. Folks, I, I don't think that that's why they're listed in the order that they are. I think if you look at this map, I think the answer of why Ephesus is first is actually quite simple. And it's this. So you see where the island of Patmos is. And if you remember, the Apostle John who wrote this book, he wrote it while he was on the island of Patmos. 
And folks, the island of Patmos was not some island paradise like Hawaii. John was not vacationing there. No, the island of Patmos, it was a prison island. It was very rocky. It was very barren. And while John was there, aside from writing the book of Revelation, he spent most of his time breaking rocks. Right? Hammering rocks and breaking them apart. And he was in prison there because of his faith in Jesus, as well as him proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he starts, he writes the letter, and if you see that, if you could, you know, you can't really tell by this map, but Patmos is about 50 miles away from Ephesus. And so back then, you know, they had couriers that would deliver letters to each, you know, town. And so it's quite simple why Ephesus is first. It's the closest to Patmos. So John writes this letter. He starts off, he sends the courier to Ephesus, and then he goes a little bit further north to Smyrna, and then a little bit further north to Pergamos, and then it goes along this postal route. In fact, this was actually a trade route. And so the reason why he starts with Ephesus is because it's just kind of the natural route that you would take there. And later on, as I mentioned last week, that the book of Revelation was written before a big persecution began to hit the church, and specifically these seven churches. And that road that you see kind of dotted there, it was eventually called Martyr's Way. Because of all the Christians in these churches that eventually were martyred under the Roman Empire. Now, specifically in regards to Ephesus. The city of Ephesus had about 250,000 people that resided in it. A little smaller than Greensboro, right? Our borough that is green, we have right around 300,000 people. And so in our day, in our city or in our time, we would consider that a city of 250,000 or a city of 300,000, well, it's not a small city, but at the same time, it's not a big city either. We would consider a 250,000 to 300,000 you know, populated city to be a medium-sized city. But folks, in the ancient world, a city of 250,000 people was considered to be a big city. It was a big city. Ephesus would, would have been like New York City. And with all the things that, that, that come, you know, in regards to living and, and being in a big city. And so the culture and the people who lived in Ephesus, they were actually very religious. But they weren't religious in the way that you and I may think if, if, in regards to religious people. And what I mean by that is this. Is as Christians, we're told what? We're told to pray for our leaders. As Christians, you know, if we have a president, we're told to pray for our president or our prime minister. We're told to honor those who have some sort of government authority and to give them the respect that is due. Whether we like them or not, we're still commanded by Scripture to pray. But folks, in Ephesus, they were required to worship their leaders. In Ephesus, they were required to worship the emperor of Rome. Now, in our days, we have what? Whenever a president, you know, whenever their term is over, what? They have libraries. We, we dedicate libraries to our former presidents. But back then in Ephesus, they had temples, temples that were devoted to the emperors. And you were required, punishable by law, to worship these emperors as God. You had no choice in the matter. It was law. And if you didn't, 
You, you could suffer some very serious consequences by not following that law. And so then on top of that, the city of Ephesus also had this, which was very influential on the city. If you want to go to that next picture. Anybody want to take a guess at what this is? This, this was actually one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Temple of Artemis, also known as the Temple of Diana. Diana. Very good. And of course, I know David would know it. David, David's a, a Bible scholar over there. We know that. So, so again, this was one of the, the, the ancient wonders of the seven world. Or, uh, the ancient seven wonders of the ancient world is known as the Temple of Diana or the Temple of Artemis. And, and this is obviously not an actual picture. All we have is ruins. But most scholars and historians believe that this is what it looked like. And Diana, she was considered to be the goddess of the countryside. She, she was the moon goddess. In fact, in the ancient world, people, there was a god for just about anything and everything you wanted or you needed. And you may not believe this, but guess what? There was a goddess by the name of Cloacina. You know what she was the goddess of? She was the toilet goddess. I kid you not, they had a god for, for your toilet and for your, your bowel movements. So back then, if you had diarrhea or if you had indigestion or if you had a tummy ache, you didn't reach for the Pepto-Bismol. You went and you prayed to this, this goddess of, of the toilet named Cloacina. And in Roman society, folks, you could pray to, you could worship any god that you wanted to. The Romans didn't really care about that. Yes, you, you did have some freedom in that. You could worship whatever you wanted to, whatever God you wanted to, as long as it was not a threat to the state of Rome. And even more so, as long as your worship did not contend with your devotion, devotion and your worship to the emperor. Everything else preceded that. Your ultimate devotion, your ultimate worship was to be directed towards whatever emperor was in power at that time. And folks, the, the Christians in Ephesus, they didn't have any sort of protection, any sort of law that protected them from this. Right? The worship of false gods was, was, was institutionalized. I want you to think about this for a second. Now, I thought about this quite a bit this past week. I thought about what would it be like if I had lived back then? You can move that slide on again to the next slide. But I wonder what would it be like for me to live back then? What would it be like for you to live back then in this culture? What would it be like for the church in America to live in such a time and in such a place? What, how, how would that have affected us? Think about this. Right? We have a tendency to believe that the church in America can only survive if it is provided legislative protection. The church can only survive if our favored Christian candidates are elected to office in power. The church in America can only survive if the next Supreme Court justices, you know, are, are pro-life. 
Only if prayer is implemented back in the schools and on and on and on. And folks, please do not misunderstand what I'm saying. I am for all of those things. But at the same time, I am concerned that as believers, we've come to depend upon such of these political blessings. Sometimes at the expense of our simple childlike trust and faith in Jesus Christ. And it's so easy for us to assume, it's so easy for us to think that we're doomed. That the church would just shrivel up and, and die if we did not have such blessings. Folks, the church in the, in the church in Ephesus and these churches that are mentioned in chapters two and three, folks, none of them had any of those blessings whatsoever. None of them. The early church didn't have a bill of rights or a constitution given to them by the Roman government that protected their freedom of speech or their freedom of religion like we do. They weren't allowed to vote. They didn't have any of those things. But folks, even though they didn't have such freedoms that we had, this church not only survived, it thrived. Which begs the question and causes one to pose and, and to think, what if the church, what if we lost our freedoms in America? I hope to God we don't. But folks, there's no guarantee that at some point in some day, we might lose some of those things. Again, I hope to God we don't. But if we did, and if we were in a similar circumstance like these churches were back then, how would we respond? And again, evidently having a freedom of some of these things, even though I think God is ultimately for freedom of speech and freedom of religion, but evidently having a freedom of such things doesn't always you know, necessarily coincide with thriving. And we're going to see more of that over the next couple of weeks as we start to look at more of these churches. So let's look at verse 1 again if you want to put that back up. I'm going to spend our time wrapping up this morning with this, this one point, one main point this morning. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands of the church. I know your deeds. I know. This is simple, but folks, this should also be very encouraging. Where do we see Jesus? If you've ever, where is Jesus right now in my life? What is Jesus? Where is Jesus? Is Jesus way up there somewhere? According to John, according to Jesus himself, he walks among the churches. 
So folks, this morning, as you're leaving here, be careful of where you walk. You may just bump into Jesus. So what does this mean? What this means is this. Is folks, there, there, is, there is never not one single service where Jesus is not present. There, there, there's, there's no one single prayer meeting where Jesus is, is not there. Whenever the church gathers together and serves the poor and feeds the hungry, where is Jesus? Jesus is right there. Jesus is always ever present. And he knows. If you're at home, how about typing in in the comments section below, he knows. And how about, yes, how about we all say it together? One, two, three. He knows. Now, I know for some of this, that may seem a little threatening. Oh, no, he, he knows. Oh, geez, he, he knows. He knows. But folks, when Jesus walks among us, he doesn't come among us as some sort of cosmic cop saying, ah, gotcha, I see what you, here, let me give you a ticket. Let me give you a citation. Jesus is not the get you God. He's not a cosmic cop, but rather as we're going to see, even though Jesus brings correction in these passages that we're going to look in these churches, and some of the stuff that he says can be really hard, but Jesus is more of a gardener. Who instead of condemning his church, rather he comes to cultivate his church. He comes to help grow what he has already planted. So even if you're sitting here this morning or if you're sitting at home and you're struggling with something, there, there may be a thought or a behavior or an attitude, we'll call it what it is. Maybe you're struggling with a certain sin this morning. You know what? He knows. He knows. But he's not there to knock you over the head. And folks, that also means this. If you're hurting, if you're struggling, if you're in pain, if you're worried, He's not up there. He's here. Again, he knows. He knows. Again, what does he know? He knows absolutely everything. Everything about you before you even think it, say it, or do it. He knows. So, well, then, what do I do this morning with the fact that he knows? Well, I'll tell you this. If you are struggling with a sin this morning, why don't you go ahead and just confess it to him? Because guess what? He already knows. You may think you're hiding it from him, but you're not hiding anything at all. He already knows. And again, he's not there to condemn you, but to 
help you. He's not the cosmic cop. He's the cosmic gardener, if you will. And if you're sitting here this morning, and if you're at home, again, you're, you're in pain, you're, you're struggling, you're, you're, you're worried, maybe ask God to help you to take to heart this promise that he walks among you, he's with you, he will never leave you nor forsake you. He is with you through always and through all times, and he knows. He knows. He knows. So the worship team comes back up. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, just pray that as we begin looking at these seven churches, and as we begin to contemplate, well, what do you think about the church? What do you want from the church? What do you desire from the church? Father, I pray that you would help us to look at ourselves and to examine ourselves. The church is made up of individuals. We are a collective. We are a community. But the church is made up of individuals. And I just pray that you would just help us not to be afraid to say, okay, Jesus, as we look at these things, these commendations that you give to the churches, oh, you know what, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm good with that one. I'm, I'm good with this, and, and Lord, would you help me with that to grow, to continue grow, to grow in those areas and, and to be strengthened? But then again, if there are some corrections, corrections, that we would also be willing to and invite Jesus into that place and say, okay, you know what, Jesus, I, I need to grow in this area. And I know you're not here to condemn. You're not here uh, to you know, beat me over the head, but you're here to help. You're here to help me to grow. And so, Father, here this morning, I do pray. If we find ourselves in this place, of, again, of, of you knowing, if there's some place that, that we're hiding, some place that we're struggling with and, and we're just holding on to it, I just pray by your grace and by your peace. This morning, you would just help us to let that go, just to, to lay it at your feet. And say, you know what, Jesus, I, I've been struggling with this. I've been trying to keep this secret and, and hiding it from you uh, long enough. But the fact that you know, you already know, I'm just going to take it this morning and just lay it at your feet. And repent. And repent just simply means stop it and take a U-turn. Instead of heading away from Christ in that area, stop, make a U-turn, and head back to Jesus. And Father, I pray that if we are struggling with some things here this morning, I just pray right now that Holy Spirit here in this room and also wherever it is that we're watching from home, I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would just bring your healing presence. Just lather up everybody with your love. And as we repent, as we let go of that thing, I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would fill that area, that you would strengthen, that you would encourage, and that you would bring growth You're not ashamed of us. You want us to come to you for these things. And Father, again, I pray that, you know, if we're in pain this morning, if we're, if we're hurting, if we're struggling with anxiety or fear, again, help us to see that, again, that you're there, that you walk among us. You're there. You're up close and you're personal. And you already know what it is that we're thinking and feeling there, too. So I pray that we would bring those things to you and invite
invite you in. Our great King and God, overcomer of the world. And I just pray that as we sing this final song here this morning, Holy Spirit, again, we just invite your presence. Just pray that as we focus on you, Jesus, and, and how beautiful you are, can you give us a glimpse of the beauty of our Savior and our God, Jesus Christ, this morning, Holy Spirit. Help us to see who he really is and what he's really like. And Lord, we love you and we thank you. And we take comfort and peace yes. knowing that you know. You know. And we pray we ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ and all God's people say, Amen. Let's worship.